0: Finally, the Oscars are done and dusted after a seemingly interminable run-up of talk show campaigns and dire predictions of irrelevance. And this week, after years of attempting to reinvent the wheel, these Academy Awards simply went back to basics and proved surprisingly successful because of it. Host Jimmy Kimmel harked back to previous safe pairs of hands like Billy Crystal, even Bob Hope at times. Look at this, by the way. I want to say right here this is my favorite duo of the year steven spielberg and seth rogan what a pair (laughs) the joe and hunter biden of hollywood and the ultimate winners were equally old hollywood in many ways albeit with a 2023 veneer one of the two big winners all quiet on the western front may have been a netflix film from germany but it was also a classic war movie Actually, it was a remake of one of the first Best Film Oscar winners back in 1930. And the Oscar goes to All Quiet on the Western Front. Kristen M. Goldberg, Production Design, Ernestine Pepper. Meanwhile, the ultimate big winner of the night, Everything Everywhere All at Once, may have seemed like a mad hotchpotch of fantasy and family values, but no more so than old Hollywood favourites like The Wizard of Oz. And it also came with Hollywood's favourite thing in the whole world a bunch of comeback stories. My mom is 84 years old, and she's at home watching. Mom, I just want an Oscar. There was Indiana Jones' former sidekick, Kei Hui Kwan, back after decades in the wilderness. There was Michelle Yeoh, who hadn't been anywhere, but finally got some mainstream respect after years of populist action movies. Dream big, and dreams do come true. And ladies, don't let anybody tell you you are ever past your prime. You never give up. And above all, there was Hollywood favourite Jamie Lee Curtis, picking up a belated award, not just for herself, but for her equally overlooked parents, Golden Age stars Tony Curtis and Janet Lee, who never won an Oscar. And my mother and my father were both nominated for Oscars in different categories. I just won an Oscar. <laughs> Overall, these Oscars were positive, enthusiastic, and mercifully incident-free. Though it was interesting to see the big losers, many of them surprising. Nothing for Tar, despite its many nominations. Nothing for Elvis, the Fablemans, or the Banshees of Venus. Sharon, but a surprising and deserved award for Sarah Polly's script for Women Talking. First of all, I just want to um, thank the Academy for not being mortally offended by the words women and talking, but so close together like that. (laughs) Cheers. In fact, that might be the best thing about these Oscars. Finally, some respect for a well-written script. This in a year where that's not always been the case. But of course, in Hollywood, anyone who owns a pencil thinks they can write. There was a time in this business when they had the eyes of the whole wide world. But that wasn't good enough for them, oh no. They had to have the ears of the world, too. So they opened their big mouths, and out came talk. Talk, talk. I wrote a film about Okies in the Dust Bowl, says failed writer Joe Gillis in Sunset Boulevard. When it came out, they'd set it in a U-boat. But that's Billy Wilder, one of the few directors who was a writer first. Goodness knows there are any amount who think their directing skills turn them into Tolstoy or Shakespeare. Yours? Romeo Nethel, the pirate's daughter. Yes, I know, I know. What is the story? Well, there's this pirate. Oscar winner Kenneth Branagh's script for Belfast leaps to mind, or Sam Mendes' recent Empire of Light, or Steven Spielberg's sentimental The Fablemans. You wonder what any of these would have been like if they'd hired a professional to write them. Quite frankly, everybody else has an interest in sending you to the electric chair. All right. You don't seem alarmed. But. Would it help? When Spielberg hired the Cohen brothers to write Bridge of Spies, there's an old rule that if it's not on the page, it won't be on the screen, but that's not always the case. How many times have you been hypnotized into thinking you're watching something good because a skillful performer is selling it with conviction? You don't need to see his identification. We don't need to see his identification. These aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids we're looking for. He can go about his business. You can go about your business. But occasionally, you run into the real deal. Not as often as we might have in whatever golden age you're nostalgic for, but it still happens. An Aaron Sorkin script, or Tom Stoppard, Greta Gerwig, or Sarah Polly for that matter. They're instantly a cut above. They haven't been cobbled out of some director's half-pied idea, or some producer's demand for yet another sequel. Devil in the canvas, 12 apple, take one. Just having trouble getting started. Wallace Veerin, wrestling picture, what do you need? A roadmap? And this week sees three films in which an actual writer has put pen to paper, albeit with mixed results. Broker is a film by Japanese auteur Hirokazu Koreeda, set in South Korea this time. Its leisurely pace covers a multitude of virtues as the film progresses. On the other side of the street is a novelty genre picture called 65. Space travel meets dinosaurs. Back to the future or into the past. In 65's case, at least the writers realised they had to put a bit of work into selling something like that. We've crash-landed on an uncharted celestial body. I don't know where we are. But first, an actor whose success has almost been his downfall. English star Bill Nye is so fixed in the public mind with popular fluff like Love Actually, Pirates of the Caribbean and The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel that we tend to forget how good he actually is. Hopefully his Oscar-nominated living may change all that. Never better. It does seem to me that he's changed. Yes. Living certainly arrives with an extraordinary pedigree. It's based on one of the most famous films by one of the most famous Japanese filmmakers, Akira Kurosawa's 1952 movie, Ikiru. It was adapted by one of Britain's most distinguished novelists, Japanese-born Nobel Prize winner Sakazuo Ishiguro it up? It's more wonder I didn't notice what I was becoming. Dad, you right. Ishiguro isn't even a screenwriter. He's first and foremost a novelist, best known for the brilliant Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go. But he was obsessed by Ikiru, determined to remake it, and remake it specifically with Bill Nighy. When I was a child, what I wanted was to be a gentleman. Bill Nai has a certain English quality, more specifically a very old-fashioned English character that was prevalent in the 50s and early 60s. And it was that quality that resonated with Ishiguro because it was identical to the Japanese salaryman featured in Ikiru. life just crept up on me. One day preceding the next... Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, morning. Mr. Williams. Not happy, not unhappy. Living opens waiting for the commuter train to London. It's Peter Wakeling's first day on the job and he's a little over-enthusiastic, a tendency he's warned off by his workmates. In particular, they advise him to restrain himself in front of the boss, Mr. Williams, Bill Nye. Mr. Williams, a little on the frosty side, perhaps... Not too much fun and laughter. Brother like church. Their office is part of the Public Works Department, where they're responsible for making sure as little as possible actually gets done. And Mr Williams seems admirably suited for such a role. His catchphrase is, file it, no harm. And then one day, the unthinkable happens. Mr Williams is late because of a doctor's appointment. Mr Williams, doctor will see you now. The results have come back. It's never easy, this. Quite. Back in the office, everyone is shocked that Mr Williams takes the entire day off. They don't realise he's been given a specific amount of time to live and no idea what to do with it. If only to be alive for one day. But I realise it. I don't know how. Well, the first thing he does is go somewhere new for lunch where he meets one of those ill-dressed poets who used to infest 50s films for a while. In this case, he's played by Tom Burke, who's rather good at this sort of thing in films like The Wonder. Tom takes Mr Williams on a bohemian night out and Mr Williams decides to extend his leave from the office. This man, until yesterday, was living a shell of an existence... I so very much do not wish to do so. Having opened himself up to possibilities, Mr Williams starts to wonder if there's anything he could or should be doing with his life. What if, for instance, instead of finding excuses not to make public works happen, he looked for something that might be worth doing? And while he's thinking along these lines, he bumps into Miss Harris, who recently left the office to get a job at a lion's corner house. Mr Williams, tis you. I was thinking lunch at Fortnum's. Fortnum's? Why not? (laughs) (laughs) Miss Harris is played by Amy Lou Wood, who's new to me because I never saw her BAFTA-winning performance in the TV series Sex Education. She's a delight as a rather unlikely muse for a runaway civil servant. She agrees to go for lunch with Mr Williams to the rather swish Fortnum and Masons. Mr Williams... I'll tell you my secret nickname for you. Mr. Zombie. Mr. What? Zombies are sort of dead, but not dead. Well, sir, it's time to live a little. Now, before we go further, I should lay my cards on the table. Speaking as someone who arrived in Guildford, Surrey at the age of five and has clear memories of all the bowler hat commuters featuring in Living, it's almost impossible for me not to respond to the almost identical experience of screenwriter Kazuo Ishiguro. When I was growing up in in Surrey, you know, I I travelled every morning to school on the same train line as as the commuters from Guildford going into Waterloo. And so I was very familiar with, with all these bowler-hatted gents, you know, going into the city. Uh, and also, you know, I, I arrived in Britain a, at the age of five in 1960, and, and so I'm old enough to have remembered that generation that kind of disappeared in the 60s of, of English people who still th- were, thought they had to behave in a, in a, in a certain kind of British manner Similarly, the music, the stock footage and the films that Mr Williams and Miss Harris take in are so weaponized in my own memory that there was no way I wouldn't react positively to living automatically. Today (coughs) is my pictures day. Uh, I was merely wishing for a companion. Oh, well, Cary Grant, Miss Harris. I understood you were quite fond of him. But there's far more to the film than simply accurate targeting. The script is dazzling, and yes, it includes the shock surprise that made Kurosawa's original film such an unexpected success. The director is a South African chap called Oliver Hermanus. I have no idea whether this is beginner's luck or not, but he doesn't put a foot wrong anywhere in living. Any female trouble? Nothing but, Sergeant Moore. Mm. Have you ever had any children before? Oh, my aching back. You know that awful feeling before breakfast? No, Captain, I don't. However, the film would never have worked without the key performance. Bill Nye is always good, even if he's occasionally squandered his gifts in rather unworthy films. So it's gratifying to see him in something that really allows him to shine and sing. Bill has been nominated for several awards this year. That he hasn't won says more about what it takes to win these sorts of competitions than it does about the quality of the work. Go and see Living and make up your own minds and take a hanky or two. Bravo, Miss Harris. (laughs) You know, I remember what it's like to be alive. Today seems to be devoted to Japanese masters for some reason, including the great Hirokazu Koreeda. Now, I first ran into him in a film called I Wish, the wishing on a bullet train movie, and then the equally charming Like Father Like Son, After the Storm and the Cannes Film Festival winner Shoplifters. Now, that was a film about families, the families you choose rather than the ones you're born into. And so, in a way, is Broker. Broker is actually set in South Korea, not Japan, and it stars Korean actor Song Kang-ho of Parasite fame. It rests on a gimmick that may or may not be true in Japan or Korea. There's a box where you can leave unwanted babies anonymously. The nearby church will then seek out suitable new parents. Broker opens with just such a deposit, and the mother takes off, leaving a note that reads, I'll be back soon. Well, the two men running the baby box assume that's the last they'll see of her. They take over baby Wu Sung and get set to put him up on the market. Sang and Dong's rationale is that they're providing a service to both unwanted baby and desperate would-be parents. Think of us as angels, says Sang. But complications occur when, against all odds, mother Moon So-young does in fact return. And while she's prepared to support the adoption of her baby, she'd like a share of the takings from the two brokers. <laughs> Moon So Young is played by one of Korea's top pop stars, but she's no slouch at the old acting either. When the first would-be adopters of baby Woo Sung take exception to his unsatisfactory eyebrows, a running gag in Broken, So Young takes no prisoners. <laughs> <laughs> The plot is further thickened by two policewomen who've been watching the original baby box from the start. Once money changes hands, they can pounce and arrest everyone. But they're also alerted to a recent murder which may implicate one, two, or all of our would-be baby brokers.. <laughs> Like shoplifters, there's a nod to the long rambling sagas of Charles Dickens, particularly Oliver Twist and its ad hoc family of artful dodgers. The final piece of the fictitious family, this is a car full of liars, says one, is a nine year old orphan. Haijin Jin may be long past the usual age of adoption, but he's prepared to join any family who'll have him. Why I should warn prospective viewers of Broker that the pace is hardly breakneck, particularly at the start. And what with a mostly unfamiliar cast, it does take its time getting up to speed. i 다시 시작할 수 있으면 좋겠다. The solution to this, I suggest, is plenty of popcorn. By the time Broker starts hitting its stride about an hour in, you should be digestively prepared for the various switches, reverses, and unexpected conclusions, particularly unexpected conclusions that sends Broker on its way. (laughs) you Now I have to say that Broker wasn't quite up to the standard of shoplifters, but the relief at knowing that the script was nevertheless in the hands of a real writer, rather than merely someone who owns a pen, is worth the price of admission these days. The publicity for a novelty sci-fi film called 65 did what it was supposed to, that is, told you pretty much what it was and how it was different from all the other ones. In this case, the writer-directors are a couple of hard-working journeymen called Scott Beck and Brian Woods, best known for writing a gimmicky end-of-the-world thriller called A Quiet Place. Location unknown. Charter 373. This is Commander Mills. My ship was hit by an undocumented asteroid. A quiet place, you may remember, involved the world overrun by monsters with uncanny hearing, so everyone keep quiet. You may also remember that it made very little sense if you were allowed to think about it, so the film went to some trouble to stop you thinking about it, which brings us to 65. Transporting 35 passengers on a long-range exploratory mission. The trailer tells us that astronaut Mills, Adam Driver, was transporting people from outer space only to crash land on a stray planet or celestial body, as he prefers. The passengers all die, saving half the budget. All but one, a kid called Koa. And as Coa and Mills set off in search of the bit of their spaceship that will get them out of here, they start to suspect they're not alone. I've located one survivor. A giant. In fact, they're not remotely alone. The hills are alive with the sound of all sorts of gigantic beasts. Have they landed on the planet Pandora? Is this the magical world of Oz? Or is this some sort of high concept involving the number 65? Send help. Which is why we're grateful for the fact that the movie keeps flashing up helpful captions. Captions that tell us we've actually landed on the planet Earth. No, not the planet of the apes exactly. This is Earth 65 million years ago when dinosaurs ruled the Earth. The atmosphere is breathable. There's something alien out there. Now, at the risk of being the killjoy blowing the whistle on the Easter bunny or the tooth fairy, there are two essential elements in science fiction that don't actually exist. One of them is easy travel between places light-years apart. The phrase light-years may give a clue as to what's wrong with that. And the other is time travel, despite countless enjoyable stories on the subject, going back to dear old H.G. Wells' time machine. But just because it's nonsense doesn't mean you can't use the idea. <laughs> You just need to put a bit of hard work into the accompanying sci-fi flimflam, which is what Beck and Woods do. Prior to the advent of man, they write in captions, other civilizations, outer space, galaxy-altering meteorite showers and so on. We must get an escape vessel. Escape pods Location unknown. Um, we need to be quiet. Quiet. And move. In other words, don't worry about it. Suffice to say, Spaceman Mills and his youthful ward, Koa, have to head up that mountain, prompted by a helpful portable computer, to find a way off this antique planet. And we can only hope that we don't run into any gigantic carnivorous beasts along the way. I need to get yes. home. Home. Oh, Ready? Run! <laughs> Well, fat chance of that, wherever they go, they keep running into more increasingly savage dinosaurs, carnivorous to a dinosaur. Oddly, on a planet boasting more digital plant life than the Amazon Basin, there's not a vegetarian amongst them. Good job that Mills has a self-loading gun that fires T-Rex-killing bullets with a flick of the finger. <laughs> Now, I suspect I've failed to convince many of you that 65 is a groundbreaking sci-fi classic. It's an astronaut meets dinosaur potboiler with a couple of OK surprises along the way and holes in the plot you could hurl stegosauruses through. To their credit, stars Adam Driver and young Ariana Greenblatt do what's required of them with a straight face. Though after a while you wonder if it's a waste of all that effort. Unlike a rival space traveller, 65 is considerably smaller on the inside than it is on the surface. And as this show completes its journey through time and space, it's time to go. I'm Simon Morris and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week.